And now, America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day to ponder great questions concerning the upcoming midterm elections and then the elections of 2024 coming after that. There is uh, one core question right now that is inspiring everybody, which is, okay, what is it that caused the Republicans all of a sudden to uh, begin a notable surge in the Republican direction about a month ago, maybe six weeks ago, but it uh, certainly the party is in a better position than it was over the summer, in the middle of the summer, right? Okay, so why? And then secondly, what would be the impact long-term in the direction of the Republican Party if uh, the party does win control of the House and does win control of the Senate? Uh, there's no one I'd rather speak to about that than uh, Mark Leibovich, who's a, been a friend of this show. He is a, a brilliant author, a hilarious often author, who has a great eye for reporting aspects of our politics that most people wouldn't uh, think of. His most recent book, which was a bestseller, as all his books seem to be, was called Thank You for Your Servitude. Uh, that actually came out this summer, and it's a memoir of the Trump administration and what happened to uh, all of those people who were running against Trump in 2016. And uh, at one point, um, we're, were not at all part of, uh, uh, of his team. Uh, and uh, the, it was about the transformation of those folks into being very loyal supporters of the former president. And what about the former president who just posted uh, some comments on uh, actually a video on his social media accounts of a conversation between Dave Rubin and Megyn Kelly. Remember them? Uh, it was a conversation about DeSantis and Trump and their chances of securing the 2024 GOP nomination. So what did we find out about that? Do we have Mark uh, reattached, uh, Jeremy? We are, uh, we, he is working on it. We will have uh, Mark Leibovich with us in a moment. Basically, the question is, since uh, President Trump uh, stood up and uh, at an inauguration, we're not talking about the inauguration of President Biden, which he chose to miss, but the first inauguration <clears throat> where he was inaugurated President of the United States, 45th President of the United States, what has changed in the Republican Party in that time? I, I know it sounds like and feels like an eon ago, but uh, there was a guy named Paul Ryan. Remember him? He was Speaker of the House at uh, the time that Trump was sworn in. Doesn't he seem a bit like yesterday's news? Is he, in fact? Mark, you with us? Michael, it's good to be with you. Sorry we got cut off before. No, thank you. I'm sorry for the telephone interruption. It's just an example of how terribly things are operating under Biden, right? <laughs> exactly, yeah. I would add a couple of more congressional seats based on our, our experience with the telephone. Okay, great. 
Um, So the the question that I would pose to you would be, okay, uh, we are approaching another midterm election, and Mm -hmm. people are talking about the way the Republican Party has changed. Uh, There's Mm -hmm. a provocative piece by Victor David uh, Davis Hanson today, and Mm -hmm. uh, that basically said the two parties have changed position, that the Republicans are no longer a party of elites and of the financially privileged. The Republicans are now a party of the frustrated and often very angry uh, Mm -hmm. working class, uh, white, Mm -hmm. uh, black, and uh, Mm -hmm. increasingly Latino. And uh, the Democrats have become uh, the party of the privileged, overeducated coastal elites. Uh, Do you think there is something to that? I I mean, you know, it's a little simplistic, but I I do think that, look, I mean, obviously the demographic profiles of the two parties have, I I don't know if they've flipped entirely, but they certainly have, a lot of coalitions have switched sides. There's no question about it. And... Um, you know, I guess the one part of that equation I would question is is the Hispanics. I mean, yes, um, Republicans have been gaining, it seems to be gaining a lot more Hispanic vote, um, but it's a very fast-growing and somewhat unpredictable population. And, you know, I think the, the jury's out on that. But I would certainly agree. I, I think, um, you know, Democrats have become increasingly more wealthy, well-educated, better educated, and certainly more coastal in the last few cycles. And, uh, you know, I think Trump's big contribution to Republicans has been to really win back or capture back the imagination of what we would call the the working class or, you know, voters of Ohio, Pennsylvania and so forth. But, um, you know, Reagan had his Reagan Democrats. I mean, I think there has certainly been a version of this in, in Trump's coalition. Uh, the question is, can can a Republican, can Republicans without Trump as the either at the top of the ticket or as the seminal figure inside the Republican Party, will, will that stick? Right. And, um, yeah, that remains to be seen. But I think certainly right now in the short term, uh, Republicans are really well positioned. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, the uh, there's a big, big news, Suffolk University USA Today poll that was out today that Mm -hmm. uh, actually did the ethnic breakdown for Republican Mm -hmm. support. And they showed that Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, Republicans uh, gained uh, uh, 30% supposedly Mm -hmm. of the Latino Mm -hmm. vote in uh, the election uh, of 2020, that this election, uh, Mm -hmm. they're at 40%, which is Is our levels that no one would have imagined 10 years ago. Yeah, I mean, look, I, that um, that's a compelling figure. I, I do think a lot of it seems to be Trump-driven, um, and, and you know, Trump isn't on the ballot this time. But but no, you're right. I mean, there's no question that um, I think Democrats took a lot of um, Hispanic coalitions, um, especially in places like Florida and Texas, for granted and have suffered for it. Yeah. Okay. The the other question here, and I I have a somewhat idiosyncratic take on this is okay Mm -hmm. what turned things around for the republicans everybody was talking about the democratic surge based on the abortion Mm -hmm. issue and uh, gee maybe even the democrats will hold the house nobody's talking about Mm -hmm. that right now it seems Mm -hmm. to me that part of that 
is Trump again, and it's Trump because he has been less dominant a figure. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I, I mean, that's terrific to have a lot of attention on John Fetterman <laughs> and less yes. attention on the former president. Exactly. Uh, do you think yeah. that's helped Republicans? Uh, unquestionably, I, I think so. I mean, I, I think, you know, again, caveat and Tories that, uh, you know, the, pe the media especially um, – is is very prone to sounding certain about how things are going to be. I mean, I think polling the last few cycles has been very unreliable, and um, you know, who's to say what this is all going to look like in two weeks? But but certainly the trend lines, the the latest polls, look really encouraging for Republicans. I I think you're right. I mean, I think there has been minimal news or much less news from the January sixth committee. Um, it looks like the, the the documents case or you know whatever the DOJ is looking for. I mean that seems to have subsided a little bit, and and Biden and Democrats have been perfectly able to to make their own bad news. I mean the economy numbers, <laughs> the inflation numbers are still bad, and and that's not a good look for for Democrats going into November. So uh, you know crime is another issue. The border. I mean these are all extreme vulnerabilities that keep. You know, coming into the news, and, and again, like you said, Trump is not exactly uh, blocking out the, the sun in this case. Okay, if we can, let's continue the conversation and look not beyond 2022 and look for 2024 on the Medved Show with Mark Leibovich, author of Thank You for Your Servitude. Talking off the air with uh, Mark Leibovich, it's uh, always a pleasure to speak to him. Uh, thank you for your servitude as points of insight and uh, amusement, because when you look back at the last few years of American politics, you have to laugh at some of it. And one of the things we were just talking about off the air was the Bullet Train, which was uh, originally um, promoted very heavily by a Republican governor of California named Arnold Schwarzenegger. And the Bullet Train, uh, one of the things that is not going to work particularly well about that is they're estimating that the cost of fare would be uh, for a, a trip that is more than double the time of an air flight would be more than triple the cost of an air flight. It's uh, really? when, I didn't yeah. know that. That is unbelievable. And plus, you know what? You got to you got to get off in Fresno. I mean, no, I'm kidding. I, I shouldn't. I shouldn't disrespect Fresno uh, at all. That's amazing. I didn't realize that. So why have a bullet train if it's going to be more expensive than a flight? Well, exactly. And and by the way, and the bullet train is originally on, only going to go from Bakersfield to Merced. Which are not huge population mm -hmm. centers in California. It it is no, they're not. They're it's complete from Bakersfield. So you know, we could have a Speaker of the House waiting on the bullet train that never comes. And by the way, and what do you think about uh, Gavin Newsom, who is increasingly being discussed as a Democratic possibility for president? We haven't gotten into this, but his wife uh, is one of the accusers of Harvey Weinstein says that he that raped right? her when she yeah when she was an aspiring actress 
She's oh, given a full God. deposition. I, I hadn't heard that. That's um, I mean, that's terrible. But I mean, wow. First of all, I, I do think that yes, Gavin Newsom is getting a lot of discussion about it as a potential Democratic candidate. But I think a lot of it is coming from Gavin Newsom. Yes, probably not 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 as much from his ex-wife Kimberly Guilfoyle. I still can't believe that, you know. I still absolutely <laughs> cannot. It's one of those things that you just walk around and like, does that really happen? And guess it has. Strange, strange bedfellows and world we live in. Well, it is. And see, looking at your books, and this is was very very much true about this town, and it's certainly true about thank you for your servitude. Uh, don't people come after you all the time and say, why don't you do a political novel? You could be the Alan oh. Drury with a much better sense of humor. Oh of uh, this generation? I would, first of all, it, it sounds too hard. I mean, first of all, I mean, nonfiction is providing me a great deal of material these last you know, <laughs> several years, obviously. You know, I might, I've been, people have asked me that, but I'm, I'm really, I'm not, again, I'm not sort of wanting for material. And also, I just don't know how to write that kind of stuff. I mean, fiction writers I am in awe of, good fiction writers. Um, and I would be very self-conscious. I mean, I'm, I'm just going to go use the crutch of what I know what to do, which is, um, you know, I guess make politicians make look look like fools in front of me while my tape recorder is running. Um, you know, it's sort of a niche market, right? But I seem to seem to have corralled some of it. But no, I, I you know, I think for, I have I have plenty to do at this point before I turn to fiction. Okay, two things that uh, we we have to uh, get to. One is this. Uh, the forthcoming battle, and I suspect there will be a battle in both parties for the nomination. It's not going to be an easy or automatic thing for Joe Biden, if he even runs, or for Kamala Harris, that there will be a big fight for the Democratic nomination. And yeah. I happen to be one of those folks who thinks that uh, if it is uh, DeSantis versus Trump, uh, that might encourage further candidates with uh, mm -hmm. the Trump loyalist vote being somewhat divided because there are people who who may consider themselves Trumpers who would prefer Ron DeSantis, no? I, I, I would not entirely agree with you here. I think, you know, if it's Trump versus DeSantis, I, I, if it's Trump versus DeSantis plus a couple of other people, I don't think... Trump, I don't think there'd be a splintering within Trump world. I mean, I think the splintering would be people supporting other candidates because it seems like Trump's support is, is pretty hardcore. Like, he's going to have 40, maybe 50 percent, I think, of the vote because they are extremely loyal. And, I, you know, again, he doesn't have as big a base as he did a few years ago, but it's still very substantial. And, and if there's more than one, um, do the math, right? They're going to split it. And I also, by, by the way, don't think DeSantis would do terribly well head-to-head -head with Trump if, if Trump does run, and I, I suspect he will. Uh, DeSantis is someone who Republicans in the House who served with him, Republican governors who, who know him from the Republican Governors Association, um, talk about him as a pretty weird dude. He, he's, not, um, <laughs> he's not charismatic the way Trump is, or he, he doesn't sort of have a hold on his audience the way Trump does. And, and I'm not sure that a guy like that will wear well, and I'm also not sure how a guy like that would do on a stage with, with Trump, who tends to um, make pretty short work of, of people who are not comfortable in their own skin, like it seems like DeSantis is. So, look, 
it'd be interesting, but I, I also think the more likely scenario is if Trump runs, that the field will be pretty well cleared, except for maybe um, you know a couple of kamikaze candidates like a Liz Cheney or a, you know Larry Hogan or someone like that. But um, you know, look, that, that's why they have elections. I could be wrong. And uh, what is the Republican Party? What what does it stand for today? With a forthcoming likelihood of a Republican yeah. majority in the House, what does it stand for today that is different from what the Republican Party of John McCain, Mitt Romney, Paul Ryan once stood for? Yeah. It, it stands for Donald Trump. I mean, plain and simple. I mean, that's what their that's what their platform was in 2020. Literally, whatever Donald Trump wants. You know, we will give it to him. And, you know, they're in a better position now than they were in 2020 because Joe Biden and the Democrats are in charge and people don't like them and the job they're doing. So, you know, that positions them well. But ultimately, I, you know, I don't see much policy or, ide- or, or ideology or principle behind a lot of their candidates and a lot of their ideas. I don't even know what their ideas are at this point. So that, you know, to me, they have a lot of, lot of space to fill in if they ever get the levers of power again. And uh, what about the uh, the likelihood of a Biden second term versus uh, Gavin Newsom or somebody else, a player to be named later? Oh, boy. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think Biden should run. I think he's too old. I think, you know, he would be he would get a lot of gratitude if he stepped aside from Democrats. But I think if he runs, I, I don't really know of any Democrats who are going to dare run against him. I, I, I wish they would, but I tend to think that if an incumbent president wants the nomination of his party, um, everyone else is going to kind of get out of the way. Um, and I don't, you know, Kamala Harris hasn't seemed to have swept anyone off their feet either. So I, I imagine, you know, we could be seeing a scenario where Trump and Biden have a rematch and, um, you know, buckle up. It, it will be, be that much more fun again, right? Well, again, it would be a, a good grounds for another one of your your books, and it, it, it's really remarkable. Biden would be eighty-two, and Trump would be seventy-eight. And uh, again, I know Chuck Grassley is uh, running ahead in uh, his bid for a three uh, hundredth term in uh, in Iowa, but he's he's eighty-nine. Uh, I'm not even going to ask your age, Mark, but uh, appreciate the spirit of youth and adventure and exploration in thank you for your servitude and your prior books. We will be right back on The Medved Show. And on The Michael Medved Show, there is a truly remarkable and I think remarkably significant piece uh, by Bill Barr former attorney general of the United States. People shouldn't forget he was attorney general not only for two years under President Trump, but he was attorney general for two years under President George Herbert Walker Bush, the first President Bush. And I think he's a great public servant, and I admire him greatly, and particularly after reading this piece about the biggest issue in the election coming up. The biggest issue, at least in my estimation, is crime, which along with the problems with the economy are uh, making all Americans feel less comfortable, less optimistic. There was a new Gallup poll that showed the levels of optimism in America concerning the next generation were way down. They were down to some of the lowest figures ever recorded. When they ask people, do you believe that people of the next generation will be uh, 
able to achieve more than we have achieved in this generation, most people think no at this point. Uh, here is uh, basically what, what Bill Barr has to say. The violent crime surge, he writes, was preventable. It was caused by progressive politicians reverting to the same reckless revolving door policies that during the 1960s and 70s produced the greatest tsunami of violent crime in American history. We reversed that earlier crime wave with the tough anti-crime measures adopted during the Reagan-Bush era. We can stop this one as well. Studies have repeatedly shown that most predatory crime is committed by a small, hardcore group of habitual offenders. They are a tiny fraction of the population. I estimate roughly 1%. But uh, they are responsible for between half and two-thirds of predatory violent crime. Each of these offenders can be expected to commit scores, even hundreds of crimes a year, frequently while on bail, on probation, or parole. The only time they aren't committing crimes is when they're in prison. For this group, the likelihood of reoffending usually doesn't recede until they reach their late 30s. The only way to reduce violent crime appreciably is to keep this cohort off the streets. Now, does that sound like obvious truth? Of course it is. We know with certainty that for each of these criminals held in prison, there are hundreds of people who aren't being victimized. This incapacitation strategy requires laws like those in the federal system that allow judges to detain repeat offenders before trial when they pose a danger to the community, and that impose tough sentences on repeat violent offenders. All of this comes back to the idea of three strikes you're out or some equivalent. In other words, if you are a, a habitual defender, offender, then you need to defend the society against you. History shows the strategy works, writes Bill Barr. Before 1960, violent crime in the U.S. was modest and stable. In the early 60s, however, liberal reformers pushed to turn state justice systems into revolving doors, with violent offenders quickly released on parole or probation. Predictably, violent crime exploded, going from 160 crimes per 100,000 population in 1960 to 758 per 100,000 in 1991. That, in fact, is an explosion of four, more than four times, more than 400 percent. Uh, in the 1980s, the Reagan administration and several large states started locking up violent offenders, and the nation's prison population rose from about 300,000 to almost 700,000. This radically flattened the rate of violent crime, which rose only 11% during the 80s. By 1991, when I first became Attorney General, the revolving door was in overdrive in many states. Nationally, murderers served less than six years on average. The average time served for rape was three years. In Texas, offenders typically served only 15% of their sentences. Five of eight felons released from prison were arrested for new crimes within three years. The George H.W. Bush administration initiated the doubling of federal prison capacity, 
pushed states to do likewise and launched a broad movement to toughen up state justice systems. It also greatly expanded joint federal, state, and local task forces to target the worst violent criminals for stiff sentences under federal gun gang and drug trafficking laws. The results of these policies were stunning. By 1992, as more violent offenders were incarcerated, the trajectory of violent crime started falling for the first time in decades. Presidents Bill Clinton and George W. Bush continued these policies, and from 1991 to 2013, the total prison population in the U.S. doubled, from roughly 800,000 to 1.6 million. At the same time, violent crime plummeted, dropping for 23 years. By 2014, it had been cut in half to a level not seen since 1970. And homicides of black victims were down by about 5,000 a year. I mean, it's astonishing. Nevertheless, progressives complained. Why were we imprisoning record numbers when crime was receding? They missed the point. Crime was dropping precisely because we were keeping violent criminals in prison. Progressives call this mass incorporation. But their rhetoric is deceptive. It implies people are being locked up indiscriminately. Uh, on the contrary, incapacitation is a precision strategy. It targets and uses prison space primarily for violent criminals who pose the greatest threat to public safety. Unfortunately, 23 years of successful crime reduction came to an end with the resurgence of progressive policies in the Obama administration, which saw a return to the revolving door and the demonization of police. Incarceration were, uh, rates started falling again, and by 2014, crime rates were headed back up. And uh, he concludes this way. Progressives say we can't afford to keep violent predators in prison. On the contrary, we can't afford not to. In other contexts, we spend huge amounts to reduce the risk of premature death or injury to members of the public, including billions on highway safety or environmental quality. If we started using the same cost-benefit analysis for law enforcement, we would be spending many times more than we do today on police and corrections. The very purpose of government, writes Bill Barr, is to secure a peaceful society, making life safe for law-abiding citizens by protecting them from violent predators. Progressive politicians are doing the opposite. They're blighting the lives of the law-abiding with their warped solicitude for the criminal few. We can stop the swelling crime wave, he writes, only by rejecting these politicians and their destructive policies. It is time for a return to sanity. Maybe, just maybe, Republicans will get some of that on Election Day. There's also a new drive uh, to actually impeach the district attorney in Philadelphia. Uh, the Pennsylvania legislature, which does have Republican majorities, uh, could do that. And uh, if they get two-thirds of the vote in the Senate, he could be driven from office. He is somebody who has reduced sentences, who has illustrated exactly the same uh, standards. This is uh, District Attorney Krasner. The same standards that uh, that Bill Barr is talking about here, and this is not just a political issue. It's not just there's and again, the attempts by Democrats to say that it is racist is completely ridiculous. When the main victims of criminal violence on the streets 
disproportionate numbers of victims are in fact black. To show that you actually care about our black neighbors and fellow citizens, uh, there's nothing more important than getting predatory criminals off the streets. I think some of that is coming across as a Republican priority. And if Republicans do win, and I think they will in uh, November 8th, this will be the issue that puts them over the top. We will be right back on the MedMed Show. And on the Michael Medved show, uh, the Dow closed today up almost 200 points, 194 points. Doesn't mean that the stock market is going to generally keep uh, returning to bull market territory. Who knows? We don't know. But one thing we do know is that when it comes to high tech startups, there are phenomenal opportunities out there and opportunities even for people without a great deal to invest. How do you find out about them? Uh, go to michaelmedved.com, click on the banner for Our Crowd, which uh, is crowdsourced funding for uh, high-tech startups, many of them based in Israel, uh, half of them based here in the United States. A remarkable record you can read about when you go to uh, the getting the weekly newsletter from our crowd, it costs absolutely nothing, and it can actually be a very significant advantage for you and for your family. Uh, speaking of advantages uh, for any family, uh, there's a lot of discussion already, of course, about the election of 2024, and President Trump Former President Trump reposted a video on his social media, media accounts. It was of a back and forth, a conversation between uh, Dave Rubin, podcaster, and Megyn Kelly, former Fox News host, of course. The uh, two were comparing DeSantis and Trump, uh, and particularly with Megyn Kelly insisting that Trump would have a great advantage in debates. Uh, listen. If they got on a stage, you, you don't think that DeSantis is, is crafty enough or no. stands enough? To, really? No. I don't even think that a little. Um, I think Trump sucks up all the energy in every room, no matter what. And even someone as skilled as a politician and smart policy-wise as DeSantis can't overcome that. He can't. You really think the hardcore MAGA is going to abandon Trump or DeSantis? They're not. They, they like DeSantis. But they don't think it's his turn. They think Trump was screwed out of his last election, that he was screwed out of his first term by all the craziness, the Russia gate and so on. And they think he's he is entitled. He deserves another shot at it. Like the hardcore Trump faithful is unshakable. They like DeSantis, but they would never cross Trump for him. And they think that DeSantis owes his political career to Trump. Like if forced to choose, they will choose Trump. So DeSantis can't take him down. It's like the line in war games. The only winning move is not to play. DeSantis has got to either be crowned by Trump um, or he shouldn't run. He won't win over Trump. I, I'll stand by that. You can play it against me if I'm wrong, but I won't be. That's uh, Megyn Kelly um, and basically echoing some of what Mark Leibowitz was saying on this show. Uh, there's also uh, this, and when you talk about an explosion 
with crime. Uh, there was yet another attack on a uh, an immortal work of art, the girl with a pearl earring, which is one of the most celebrated, most incandescent portraits ever created, created by Johannes Vermeer. Uh, in it's on display in a Dutch museum in the in the Hague in the Mauritshuis, and the painting was created in 1665 and here in 2022 it was uh, again attacked by climate activists uh, this time three people were arrested it sounded like this listen how do you feel how do you feel when you see something beautiful and priceless being apparently destroyed before your eyes? Do you feel outraged? Where is that feeling when you see the planet being destroyed before our very eyes? This painting is protected by glass. It's just a Okay, this is really one of the <laughs> most insipid trends because now they've attacked uh, what? They, they attacked the Van Gogh sunflowers, they attacked a Monet painting, now they attacked a Vermeer. There are only about 25 Vermeers in existence. I mean, they're very, very rare and incredibly valuable. Apparently, the masterpiece was not uh, destroyed and was not even damaged. But wouldn't it be a good idea to kind of recognize that this is not an ideal way to influence the public? Uh, does the idea of gluing yourself to the wall and throwing things at masterpieces of art uh, does does that really work to build support? I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I, Jeremy has a suggestion. If they um, attacked a, a work of uh, what's called modern art, say abstract expressionism from the 1950s, big blotches of color that are non-representative uh, that most people don't value and understand, uh, maybe that just wouldn't inspire um, the same kind of outrage. Speaking of outrage, there was a, uh, a criminal who I didn't know anything about, but his record was astonishing, a, a master con man who uh, was also a party boy and uh, is, is actually got himself on the 10 most wanted list of the FBI. And now there's a pretty good movie that tells his story. He's designated American Murderer. Listen. Now it's time for Medved's Entertainment Minute. Ryan Philippe plays a dedicated FBI man on the track of a charismatic con man who seduces women and victims in American Murderer. Now playing in theaters and soon to be streaming on multiple platforms. 
This is our prime suspect. He's a con man. You're never going to find him. You sure about that? He won't get away with this. Based on the true story of somebody who got away with a great deal, culminating in a cold-blooded killing, rising star Tom Pelfrey is outstanding as a protagonist you can't help liking and loathing, while Broadway star Adina Menzel is memorable as one of his innocent victims. The relationship between the anti-hero and his family provides some unexpected depth in this surprisingly spellbinding true crime drama. Two and a half stars for the memorable American murderer. And one of the movies we're going to be covering tomorrow is also about a, uh, a murderer, but a much more prolific murderer than, uh, than the one celebrated American murder. Uh, the film we're going to be covering tomorrow is The Good Nurse, starring Jessica Chastain and Eddie Redmayne, both Oscar winners. And I'll tell you right now, this is one of the best films of the year. So stay tuned. Uh, we will also be reviewing Till, which is about the famous lynching, a brutal lynching of a 14-year-old boy in Mississippi in 1955 that was a real spark to the civil rights movement. And a very respectful film of that incident uh, coming out. The, we'll also be talking to A.B. Stoddard. She asks a very good question. With uh, all of the upset already, voting already started, right? And uh, there's already charges of cheating and, and more and irregularities going on. Will the GOP call for calm and for peace on Election Day and in the weeks that follow? And uh, we will also be talking about a program for here in Washington that could make a real difference in giving us the kind of education system that we deserve. There's no reason that the state of Washington shouldn't be among the very, very top achievers in education of any state, but we're not. We're not even close to it. Why not? We'll be talking with the Washington Policy Center about that. And uh, as protests rock Iran, its most feared security force is lying in wait. In wait for what? Uh, we'll be speaking uh, with a Washington Post reporter on that subject. Also, sign up for our absolutely free newsletter. It comes out tomorrow with the movie reviews that I just mentioned and more. A lot of articles that I haven't been able to cover on the air, but that deserve your attention. It's all completely free. Just go to michaelmedved.com and uh, sign up and you'll get the newsletter with uh, a, a great array of material all uh, heading your way tomorrow in this greatest nation on God's green earth.